Story three of In Exile and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Wales. In Exile and Other Stories by Mary Halleck Foote. Story three The Story of the Alcazar. It was told by Captain John to a boy from the mainland who was spending the summer on the island, as they sat together one August evening at sunset on a broken bowsprit which had once been a part of the Alcazar. It was dead low water in southwest harbor, a landlocked inlet that nearly cut the island in two, and was the gateway through which the fishing craft from the village at the harbor head found their way out into the great Penobscot Bay. There were many days during the stern winter and bleak spring months when the gate was blocked with ice or veiled in fog, but nature relented a little toward the island folk in the fall and sent them sunny days for their late scant harvesting, and steady winds for the mackerel fishing, to give them a little hope before the winter set in sharp with the equinoctial. Now at low tide the bright gateway shone wide open as if to let out the waters that rise and fall ten feet in the inlet. You could look far out beyond the lighthouse at Crenshaw's Neck and the islands that throng the mouth of the harbor to the red spot of flame the sunset had kindled below the rack of smoke-gray clouds. The color burned in a dull gleam upon the water, broken by the dark shapes of shadowy islands. The sailboats at anchor in the muddy, glistening flats leaned over disconsolately on their sides, in despair of ever again feeling the thrill of the returning waters beneath their keels, and the gray, weather-beaten houses crowded together on the brink of the cliffs above the beach looking like a group of hooded old women watching for a belated sail, seemed to have caught the expression of their inmates' lives. At high tide the hulk of the Alcazar had been full of water, which was now pouring out through a hole in the planking of her side in a continuous murmurous stream, like the voice of a persistent talker in a silent company. The old ship looked much too big for her narrow grave at the foot of the green cliff, in which her anchor was deeply sunk and half overgrown with thistles. Her blunt bow and the ragged stump of the figurehead rose dark and high above the wet beach where Captain John sat with his absorbed listener. There were rifts about her rail where the red sunset looked through. Her naked sides that for years had been moistened only by the perennial rains and snows, showed rough and scaly like the armor of some fabled sea-monster. She was tethered to the cliff by her rusty anchor-chain that swung across the space between, serving as a clothesline for the draggled driftweed left by the receding tide to dry. She was a big ship for these parts, Captain John was saying. There wasn't one like her ever come into these waters before. Lord, folks come down from the Neck and from Green's Landin' and Nor'east Harbor, 
and I don't know but they come from the main, to see her when she was fust towed in. And such work as they made of her name! Some called it one way and some another. It's a kind of a Cubian name, they say. I expect there ain't anybody round here that can call it right. However, twas old Captain Green took and prided off her starboard quarter, and somebody got hold of it and nailed it up over the blacksmith's shop, and there you can see it now. The old captain named her the stranger when he had her refitted. Maybe you could make out the tail of an S on her stern if you could get round there. The name's been gone these forty years. Seems if she never owned to it, and it didn't stick to her. She was never called anything but the Alcazar, long as ever I knew her, and I expect I know full's much about her as anybody round here. Twas a settin' here on this very beach at low water, just as we be now, that the old man told me first how he picked her up. It took a wonderful holt on him, there's no doubt about that. He told it to me more'n once before the time come when he was to put the finish on to it. But in a general way the captain wasn't much of a talker, and he was shy of this particular business for reasons that I expect nobody knows much about. But a man most always likes to talk to somebody, no matter how close-mouthed he may be. Twas just about this time of year, fall uh, twenty-seven, the year Parson Flavor was ordained. Captain Green had gone a mackerel fishing with his two boys off Isle of Haute, and they did think of cruising out into Frenchman's Bay if the weather held steady. They was having fair luck hanging round the island off and on for a matter of a week, when it thickened up a little and set in foggy, and for two days they didn't see the shore. The second evening the wind freshened from the southern and eastern and drove the fog in shore a bit, and the sun, just before he set, looked like a big yellow ball through the fog and made a sickly kind of glimmer over the water. There was a lion at anchor, and all of a sudden, right to the windward of them, this old ship loomed up, drifting in with the wind and flood tide. They couldn't make her out, and I guess for a minute the old captain didn't know, but it was the flying Dutchman. But she hadn't a rag of sail on her, and as she got nearer they could see there wa'n't a man on board. The captain didn't like the looks of her, but he knew she weren't no phantom, and he and one of his boys down with the punt and went alongside. T'wasn't more'n a quarter of a mile to her. They hailed and couldn't get no answer. They knew she was a furriner by her build, and she must have been a long time at sea by her having barnacles on her nigh as big as a mackerel kit. Finally they pulled up to her four chains and clum aboard of her. I never see a ship abandoned at sea myself, but I ain't no doubt but what it made em feel kind of shivery when they looked aft along her decks, and not a soul in sight, and everything bleached and gray and iron-rusted, and the rigging all slack and whites though it'd been chawed, and nothing left of her sails but some old rags flapping like a last year's scarecrow. They went and looked in the forecastle. There wa'n't nothing there but some chists, men's chists, with a little old bedding left on the bunks. They went down the companionway, cabin door unlocked, everything in there as natural as though it had just been left, only twas 
kind of moldy smelling. I expect the captain give a kind of a start as he looked around. Twa'n't no old greasy whaler's cabin, nor no packet ship neither. There weren't many craft like her on the seas in them days. She was fixed up inside more like a gentleman's yacht is now. Merchantmen in them days didn't have their turkey carpets and their colored wine glasses jingling in the racks. While they was exploring around in there, moving round kind of cautious, the door of the captain's stateroom swung open with a creak, just as though somebody was a-shoving it slow-like, and the ship gave a kind of a stir and a rustling moaning sound, as if she was a-coming to life. The old man never made no secret but what he was scared when he went through her that night. Twa'n't so much what he said as the way he looked when he told it. I expect he thought he'd seen enough about the time that door blew open. He said he knowed twa'n't nothing but a puff of wind struck her, and that he'd better be a-getting on to his own craft before he lost her in the fog. So he went back and got under way and sent a line aboard of the stranger and took her in tow, and all that night with a good southeast wind they kept a-moving toward home. The old man was kind of restless and wakeful, walking the decks and looking over the stern at the big ship following him like a ghost. The moonlight was a little dull with fog, but he could see her plain, a-coming on before the wind with her white riggin' and bare poles, and hear the water sousin' under her bows. He said twas in his mind more'n a dozen times to cut her adrift. You see, he had his misgivings about her from the fust though he never let on what they was. But he hung on to her as a man will sometimes, again feelings that have more sense in em than reason, like as not. He knew everybody at the harbor would laugh at him for letting go such prizes as that just for a notion, but it wasn't his way, you may be sure. He didn't need no one to tell him what she was worth. Anyhow, he hung to her, and next day they beached her at high water, right over there by the old shipyard. He took Deacon Sylvain and his brother-in-law, Captain Purse. Pierce, they call it nowadays, but in the captain's time it was Purse. That sounds kind of broad and comfortable, like the captain's waistcoat, but the family's thinning down a good deal lately and getting kind of sharp and lean, and maybe Pierce is more suitable. But I was saying, Captain Green took them two cheerful, loud-talking men they was, both of them, aboard of her to go through her, for he hadn't no notion of going into that captain's stateroom alone, even in broad daylight. But twa'n't there the secret of her lay. There wa'n't nothing in there to scare anybody. She was trimmed up, I tell you, just elegant. Real mahogany, none of your veneerin', but the real stuff, lace curtains to the berth, lace on the pillars, and a satin cover-lid, rumpled up as though the captain had just turned out. There was his slippers handy, the greatest-looking slippers for a man you ever saw. They wouldn't have been too big for the neatest-footed woman in the harbor. But land, they was just thick with mold, and so was everything in the place, even to an old guitar with the strings most rotted off of it, and the pictures of furrin-looking women on the walls training looking creatures, most of them. They hunted all through his desk, but couldn't find no log. Twas plain enough that whoever left that ship had took pains that she shouldn't tell no tales, 
and twa'n't long before they found out the reason. When they come to go below, there was considerable of a crowd on deck by that time standing round while they knocked out the keys and took off the forehatch. Captain Green called on Captain Purse and the deacon to go down with him, but they didn't appear to be very anxious, and the old man wa'n't going to hang back for company with everybody looking at him, so he lit a candle and went down, and the folks crowded round and waited for him. I was there myself, as close to him as I be to that fish-barrel. When he come up, his face white's a sheet and the candle shaking in his hand, and sought down on the hatch-combin'. "'Give me room,' says he, kind of leaning back in the crowd. "'Give me air, can't you? She's full of dead niggers. She's a slaver.' Now, twas the talk, pretty generally, that the captain had had a hand in that business himself in his early days, and that it set uncomfortable on him afterwards. It never was known how he got his money. He didn't have any to begin with. He was always a kind of a lone bird, and dug his way along up somehow. Nobody knows what was working on him while he sot there. He looked awful sick. It was kind of quiet for a minute, but them that couldn't see him kept pushing forwards and calling out, What you see? What's down there? And them close by wanted to know, all talking to once, why he thought she was a slaver, and how long the niggers had been dead. Lord, what a fuss there was, everybody asking the foolishest question, and crowding and squeezing, and them in front pushing back away from the hatchway, as if they expected the dead would rise and walk out of that black hole where they'd laid so long. They couldn't get much out of the old man, except that there were skeletons scattered all over the afterhold, and that he knew she was a slaver by the way she was fixed up. How'd he know? folks asked amongst themselves but nobody liked to ask the captain. As for how long them Africans had been dead, they had to find that out for themselves, all they ever did find out. For the captain wouldn't talk about it, and he wouldn't go down in her again. It appears as if he was satisfied. Well, it made a terrible stir in the place. As I tell you, they come from fifty mile round to see her. They had it all in the papers, some had one idee and some another about the way she come to be abandoned and in good shape and them human beings in a hold. Some said ship fever, and some said mutiny. But when they come to look her over and found there want a water cask aboard of her that hadn't shrunk up and gone to pieces, they settled down on the notion that she was a Spanish or a Cuban slava, or maybe a Portuguese, got short of water in the horse latitudes, Captain and crew left her in the boats, and the niggers, Lord, it makes a body sick to think of them. That was always my theory about her, short of water, but some folks wasn't satisfied, thought something more exciting. Twa'n't enough for them to have all them creatures dying down there by inches. They stuck to it about some bloodstains on the lining in her hold, but I tell you the difference between old bloodstains and rust that's maybe ten or fifteen years old's might hard to tell. Nobody knows what the old captain was thinking about in them days. Twas full three months or more fore he went aboard of her again. He let it be known that he wanted to sell her, but he couldn't get an offer even. Nobody seemed to want to take hold of her. Winter set in early and the ice blocked her in, and there she lay, the lonesomest thing in sight. 
You never see no children climbing round on her, and there was a story that queer noises like moaning and clanking of chains come out of her on windy nights. But it might have been the ice, crowding as she careened over and back with the rising and falling tide. But when spring opened, folks used to see the old captain hanging round the shipyard and looking her over at low tide where the ice had cut the barnacles off of her. One night in the store he figured up how much lumber she'd carry from Banger, and twa'n't long before he had a gang of men at work on her. It seems though he was kind of infatuated with her. He was afraid of her, but he couldn't let her alone. And she was a mighty well-built craft, floridy pine and live oak and mahogany from the Mosquito Coast, built in Cadiz, most likely. Look at her now. She don't look to home here, does she? She never did. She's as much like our harbor craft as one of them big, yellow-eyed, bare-necked buzzards is to one of these here little sand-peeps but she was a handsome vessel. Them live-oak ribs'll outlast your time if you was to live to be old." The two faces looked up at the hulk of the Alcazar, the blanched, wave-worn messenger sent by the tropic seas into the far north with a tale that the living had never dared to tell, and that had perished on the lips of the dead. Its shadow, spreading broad upon the beach, made the gathering twilight deeper. Out on the harbor the pale saffron light lingered long after the red had faded. How many tides had ebbed and flowed since the old ship, chained at the foot of the cliff, had warmed in the waters of the gulf, her bare corrugated sides, warped by the frosts, stabbed by the ice of pitiless northern winters? Where were the sallow, dark-bearded faces that had watched from her high poop the brief twilights die on that unshadowed main, which a century ago was the scene of some of the wildest romances and blackest crimes in maritime history, the bright, restless bosom that warmed into life a thousand serpents whose trail could be traced through the hot, flower-scented southern plazas and courts into the peaceful white villages of the north. Sure, I'd no idea twas a gettin' on so late," said Captain John. "There ain't nobody watchin' out for me. I can put my family under my hat, but I don't know what your folks'll think come o' you. While well, the rest o' em don't take long to tell, the old man had her fitted up in good shape by the time the ice was out of the river, and run her up to Banger and Ballast, and loaded her there for New York. He had an ugly trip down the coast lost his deck-load and three men overboard in a sou'easter off Nantucket Shoals. It made the whole ship's company feel pretty solemn, but the old man took it the hardest of any of em, and from that time seemed as if he lost his grip. The old scare settled back on him blacker than ever. There wasn't a man aboard of her that liked her. They all knew her story, that she was the Alcazar from nobody knows where, instead of the stranger from Newburyport. The captain had Newburyport put on her because he was a Newburyport man, and all his vessels was built there. But she hadn't a more'n touched the dock in New York, before every one on them left her, even to the cook. "'I'm leery of this here ship,' says one of big Cornishmen. "'No better than a floatin' coffin, anyway,' was what they all said of her. And I guess the captain would a left her right there himself if it hadn't been for the money he'd put into her. 
I expect he was a little too fond of money, maybe. But I've knowed others just as sharps, the old captain, that didn't seem to have his luck. The mate saw him two or three times while he was a-lying in New York, and noticed he was drinking more than usual. He come home light and anchored off the bar, just as the southeaster was a-coming on. It wouldn't have been no trouble for him to have laid there, if he'd had good ground gear, but there twas again he'd been a leetle too savin'. He'd used the old cables he found in her. The new mate didn't know nothing about her, and he put out an anchor. The captain had taken a keg of New England rum aboard and been drawn on it pretty regular all the way up, and as the gale come on he got kinda wild and went at it harder than ever. About midnight the cable parted. They let go the other anchor, but it didn't snub her for a minute, and she swung broadside too, on to the bar. The men clumb into the rigging before she struck, but the old captain was staggering round decks, kinda dazed and dumb-like not trying to do anything to save himself. The mate tried to get him into the rigging, seeing he wasn't in no condition to look out for himself, but the old man struck loose from his holt and cried out to him through the noise, Let me alone! I've got to go with her! I tell you, I've got to go with her! The mate just had time to swing himself back into the mizzen shrouds before the sea broke over her and left the decks bare. The old ship pounded over the bar in an hour or so and drifted up here onto the beach where she is now. Every man on board was saved except the captain. He went with her, sure enough. There was talk enough about that thing before they got done with it to a made the old man roll in his grave. They raked up all the stories about his cruising on the Spanish main when he was a young man. They what stories he'd ever told. He wa'n't much of a hand to talk about what he had seen and done on his voyages. They never let him rest till twas pretty much the general belief, and is to this day, that he knew more about that slaver from the first than he ever owned to. I never had much to say about it, but twas plain enough to me. I had my suspicions the morning he towed her in. He looked terrible shattered. It appeared to me he wasn't ever the same man afterwards. I've got to go with her. Them was his last words. He knew that ship and him belonged together, same as a man and his sins. He knew she'd have been a-hunting him up and down the western ocean for twenty years, with him dead a-hissin' in her hold, and she'd hunted him down at last. Captain John paused with this peroration. He dug a hole in the wet sand with the toe of his boot and watched it slowly fill. "'Twas a bait most any one would a smelt of, a six-hundred-ton ship and every timber in her sound, but you'd a thought he'd been more cautious, knowing what he did o' her. She was bound to have him, though." "'Captain John,' said the boy, a little hoarse from his long silence, "'what do you suppose it was he did? Anything except just leave them, the negroes, I mean?' Lord, wasn't that enough? To steal em and then leave em there, batten down like rats in the hold? However, I expect there ain't anybody that can tell you the whole of that story. It's one of them mysteries that rests with the dead. The new mate, the young fellow he brought on from New York, he married the captain's daughter. None of the harbor boys ever seemed to job in with her. I always had a notion that she was a touch above most of em. 
but she and her mother was as good as a providence to them shipwrecked men when they was throwed ashore, strangers in the place, and no money. And it ended in Rachel's taking up with the mate and the whole family leaving the place. It was long after all the talk died away that the widow come back and lived here in the same quiet way she always had till she was laid alongside the old captain. There wa'n't a better woman ever walked this earth than Mary Green, that was Mary Spofford. Captain John rose from the bowsprit and rubbed his cramped knees before climbing the hill. He parted with his young listener at the top and took a lonely path across the shore pasture to a little cabin where no light shone, built like the nest of a seabird on the edge of high-water mark. On the gray beach below, a small dinghy yawl, with one sail loosely bundled over the thwarts, leaned toward the door-latch as if listening for its click. It had an almost human expression of patient though wistful waiting. It was the poorest boat in the harbor. It had no name painted on its stern, but Captain John, in the solitude of his watery wanderings among the islands and channels of the bay, always called her the Mary Spofford. The boy from the main went home slowly along the village street toward the many-windowed house in which his mother and sisters were boarding. There were voices, calling and singing abroad on the night air, reflected from the motionless glimmering sheet of dark water below as from a sounding-board. Cowbells tinkled away among the winding paths along the low, dim shores. The night call of the heron from the muddy flats struck sharply across the stillness, and from the outer bay came the murmur of the old ground-swell, which never rests even in the calmest weather. End of Story 3